This is the Thanks for Sharing podcast, a podcast where we explore all things recovery, healing, and relationship. You can subscribe and download episodes wherever you listen to podcasts. And you can follow us on our social media pages. And while you're at it, I would love a review. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Thanks for Sharing. I'm your host, Jackie Pack. And today I have with me Rachel Allen. Hi, guys. And we are going to record this podcast talking about toxic family systems within religious cultures. So I think I've talked before on this podcast about kind of dividing it. Family systems theory divides family types or family systems into three categories. They talk about healthy or actually what healthy means is they're adaptable. Then we have enmeshed. And under each of those, you can have rigid, under enmeshed, or under disengaged. So I've done some episodes on that. If you want a refresher, you know, as we kind of dive into it, we'll give you some summaries and kind of talk about those. But I did episodes around each type of family system if you want more more for your own information. So, okay, let's get started talking about within toxic family systems. So we'd be talking about the meshed family systems, disengaged family systems. How do you summarize that when you're talking to clients? Yeah, so I kind of say... And mesh family systems are families that don't have boundaries, right? Mm -hmm. Or um, the boundaries, it's hard to tell like where mom and dad stop and where kids start. Mm -hmm. And so oftentimes this is where like, if mom's not happy, everybody's not happy, we show up, Mm -hmm. right? We're not allowed to have our own emotions outside of the parent unit. It also... It could be out of the parent unit or just one parent. Yeah. Sometimes the other parent is also organizing their reality around their partners or their spouse's right. emotionals um, reality. Right. Uh, sometimes I'll have clients say like, well, my mom or my dad, were they were the biggest personality in the room. Mm-hmm. And so we just all kind of gravitated towards making that comfortable. And that can be in happy things too, right? Like, so we see mesh family systems as like we all do this thing right we are the joneses we are mm-hmm. and so it becomes this whole identity to be a part of the right. system instead of individual yeah and this is where i also will say like that we see a lot of like emotional incest or emotional where children will become a surrogate spouse or children know way too much about the parents like we're so life or there's just no boundaries mm-hmm. right and, and then in the disengaged family system this is where we all kind of like function as individuals like we may even have the like we are the joneses umbrella but there's not a lot of like i don't know where my parents are emotionally like they don't talk to us about anything mm-hmm. so there's walls not so ms just no boundaries and disengaged is there's walls like we don't talk about hard things we're just pleasant even though we're probably not pleasant but we just don't talk about the hard things we don't or we engage at a very surface level we don't really get into individual struggles or individual joys or whatever that is i usually will use kind of the antidote of a kid who likes basketball but everybody else plays soccer and so that kid has to get themselves up and go to basketball games and whatever comes because it's outside of the family unit Mm -hmm. and so like there's no support in the individuality and it's often really lonely like i hear 
adults talk about in their childhood feeling lonely or feeling like they can't like really go deep or like mm-hmm. living in a fog or like my you know like it was just not important like mm-hmm. just my individual thoughts are not important and so we we just didn't engage that right Molly, which can happen in both family systems like we see some of those emotions coming out of mesh family systems because again there's not room or individuality is seen as a threat in an enmeshed family system. So that's also going to feel lonely, maybe in some different ways, yet that feeling of loneliness is going to be common for people coming from enmeshed family systems as well as coming from disengaged, right? You just don't have people knowing to connect with you, knowing how to get to know you like on an emotional level, maybe Maybe your needs are being met. Sometimes they are. Sometimes they aren't. In both family systems, you know, you're provided for, which is why in the adult years, often people are confused about why they felt that way. Because when they look back, they might say, well, my needs were met. Yeah. But for sure. That we're not thinking of emotional needs being met, individual needs being met. This is one of the things that like, and this is, a, again, a Rachel thing. This has no like research backing it. But one of the things I've noticed is in my family systems, I will hear people talk about their history or their family story as we. It's mm-hmm. always a we. Mm-hmm. There's very little like individuation in that where I hear people talking about a disengaged family system. There's a lot more I, mm-hmm. but in really like almost inappropriate ways. Like I taught myself to tie my shoes. Okay. Well, like, was there anybody helping you? Like, no, I just, I just figured it out. Right. So there's almost this like Charlie Brown effect where like mm-hmm. the adults are there, but they're not really engaged. Mm-hmm. And it is kind of subtle until you start looking back at it. Right. Because when you're in the family system, you don't realize that that's not healthy. Mm-hmm. Where they'll talk about how independent they were. Yes. And really in reality, it's a toxic independence because young kids and I, I mean, I've gone through the teenage years, like they're not really independent. Right. Um, not until like now mo- most of my kids are in that young adult stage mm-hmm. and I feel like they're more independent than they ever have been, but I, they surprisingly still have a lot of emotional needs that they come to me and their dad with, like, because we're human beings. Right. Yeah. And I, I think that that is kind of how I start presenting it as client, uh, to clients, right, is that Either there are no boundaries, we can't tell the difference, or that there are walls and there were definitive different differences and we can really like get through those walls. Yeah. Which is different than a healthy or adaptive family system that has boundaries, right? We're not sharing everything with our children that's inappropriate, but we'll also talk about hard things and we'll check in on how they are emotionally and we'll kind of like figure that out. But that's not... Right. That feels different. It feels a lot less lonely. It feels a lot less like anti-dependent. And so those things kind of feel different in the body. I guess that's how right. I say mm-hmm. And I have to say just real quick, we're recording this while they are taking down scaffolding outside kind of where we are on um, this half of the building. If you are a client at the Salt Lake location, you know, we have no control over what has been happening the past year in terms of construction sounds. And so I will, of course, do the background filtering. I'll apply that once we're done recorded. But I 
don't know how much that's going to filter out. So if you hear clanging of like metal, that's just, you know, them taking down the scaffolding and I don't know how long that's going to last. It's just, it's just the background noise and therapy this past year. Yep. So, okay. So let's talk about, we have both of those um, toxic systems or unhealthy family systems that we can grow up in. Let's add that layer about if the family is highly religious, then how does that show up in each of those family systems enmeshed and disengaged? Yeah. So I do want to make a disclaimer, right? Like when we were talking about this, we were talking about highly, we were talking about dysfunctional systems, right? And this is not based on any religion or any like, like you can be religious, you can be spiritual and these things not show up. Right. Um, right. Right. If you have an adaptive family system and are part of a religion, these things don't show up quite the same way and are a lot less damaging. Like mm-hmm. kids can kind of grow up in an adaptive family system and work through religious rules or things like that and say like, okay, yeah, like that's not for me, but like, you know, I like this overall faith mm-hmm. or whatever mm-hmm. it is. That does not show up in dysfunctional family systems that are also highly religious right there's a layer of using the spirituality to reinforce the dysfunction that we often see and that becomes highly abusive in a lot of ways Uh, we're reading a book in one of our therapy groups right now Mm -hmm. called facing codependence and we've we've read this book several times like this is my fourth time through and the part on spiritual abuse is really that, right? Like using a faith or using spiritual constructs as a way to rule. Mm-hmm. Or to give the parent more authority. Yeah. More like, this is how you do it because God, my parent is in tune with God, right? right. Or talks with God or however the beliefs structure. Like, so there's almost this extra emphasis on the parental authority and what they're doing being correct. Yes. I mean, there are multiple ways that this shows up. Most of my experience is in evangelical Christian culture and LDS Christian culture. And so that is where my paradigm is coming from because that is the, the, those are the clients that I work with. And then, you know, that's kind of the religious affiliations that I've had the most access to. Right. Now I have friends back East who you know, work with a lot of Catholics and a lot of Jewish cultures. And these things do kind of show up in, in that. Mm-hmm. I've also, I have one friend who uh, works a lot in a Buddhist community and Buddhism in general tends to be like a lot less rigid as a religion, but these tenets have shown up in their dysfunctional family systems as a way to control the kids as well. And so I want to be clear that this is kind of how we use religion to control in a family dynamic and not necessarily about the religion itself or the tenets of religion. Right. Right. We have, my family had the opportunity to have a couple of, well, two girls come over from India. This would have been in 2018 Mm -hmm. and stayed with us for a short time period. And I, in the Hindu faith, which is, it was so interesting because the religion, like, 
I, I would say the religious as well as the caste system in India, which I know India is somewhat moving away from, but where they are very rural, they come from subsistence farmers, like it was very much still in place. And so between religion and the caste system, which are somewhat like co-occurring, right? Yeah. Reinforce each other. Um, the Hindu religion defines so much of their life, but like... It's not like they ever had time to go to religious services or anything like that, right? And so it wasn't like when we would talk to them, like they couldn't sit down and be like, oh, here's our religious beliefs, right? They were more just beliefs that they thought they had. Or, I mean, they were because um, the school, and we still donate uh, financially every month to the school. It's in a rural area of India. And they opened like a girls' school and tried to recruit them through soccer. That's how my kids got involved is through a soccer program called Goals for Girls. And they recruit these girls to come to school, but then they also teach them how to play soccer. And they teach a lot of different leadership skills, team building skills. They also, I mean, the principal is a U.S. citizen uh, raised here in the U.S. and when they came over, it was a full group of them coming over from different schools, but the principal from their school also came over and we were talking and she said, you know, we tell the parents that because it's very common for young girls to be married off. Yeah. And she said, you know, we tell the families that like, they have to have our permission to marry the girls. And she's like, I mean, legally, it's probably not the case, like, but we make the parents sign a document saying that we have final say in that. And she's like, and they do believe it. And so we can get the girls more education. Um, a lot of them go to some uh, college, they get college scholarships, things like that. And so we've kept in touch with particularly one of them um, who was 14 when she came. She's 17 now. Um, she just finished up when they come over to, she came over to Arizona for a year at school. I study Spanish. Yes. Yeah. And she was selected, one of very few that came over, right, from especially from India and uh, lived in Tucson for a year. And so at the end of the school year, we went down and spent some time with her and visited with her. And it's always so fascinating to hear her talk, right? And, I mean, her family now is very supportive of her. I'm sure she'll get some college scholarships. She would really like to come to the U.S., but a lot of that is just dependent on what she can get. But even within that religious, toxic family system culture, it's been interesting dynamics. Like when we're there or like when she was living with this family in Tucson and she lived with our family for a little while, like just that exposure to some different types of families. Like she has a lot of questions and just kind of a shift in her mindset. I would say from a Western mindset more to an Eastern, like she's really noticing and seeing these differences yeah and so yeah so as we kind of dive in like that's my biggest disclaimer because i think that when we can when we start talking about these hard topics mm -hmm. people can feel like their faith is being attacked mm -hmm. or and that is absolutely not the point, right right and and not the goal but it is to start talking about like the ways that these things get used that aren't great they're not right they, they don't right. And we, we usually have a lot of wounds from them as an adult. So one of the ways uh, you and I, well, you and I watched the 
Duggar docu series, and then Rachel deep dived into like two other religious docu series. One of the well, actually, so there was the Rise and Fall on Mars Hill with right. the podcast yeah. um, about the Church of Mars Hill, which was ran by Mark Driscoll mm-hmm. up in the Seattle area, and then there was Hillsong, which is an Australian based church. Most people in the United States know them for their music, but Hillsong, New York, got in a lot of heat several years ago, and it was kind of about the fall of that church specifically, but then how Hillsong kind of uh, does things on a global level. And the thing that is always really interesting to me is that in these pockets, right, in the Duggar, the UTI Duggar pocket, the Mars Hill pocket, the Hillsong pocket, there are some really like healthy kind of people trying to like move in those things. And then there's a lot of abuse and there's a lot of things that happen within families that then also get reinforced kind of in this closed religious system. And some of those being that like, like I'm just going to throw out some sayings that I've heard, right? Um, Children should be seen, not heard. Children should obey their parents at all costs. The God is the head, then the father. This was um, in the the Duggar family thing, the umbrella. But the umbrella thing is kind of permeated throughout mm-hmm. a lot of evangelical mm-hmm. Christianity. But it's God is the head, then the father, and then like, yeah. So that shot in the LDS culture as well. Yeah, we had that same kind of paradigm drawn out in terms of hierarchical yeah so like a lot of hierarchical power you know like your wants are not important there's a lot of puritanical ideas that come up for this right that like suffering is good i didn't i was actually just reading another book had nothing to do with religion and one of the things that she said is like human like suffering is a sign in the body that we should shift that things are not working Mm -hmm. and so if we take on suffering as a badge we're just continuously hurting ourselves right without there being a lot of payout Mm -hmm. um or a similar like you've ever gone to a yoga class right they talk a lot about it can be there can be discomfort but not pain yes right pain is a sign that we need to ease it off or we need to shift or we need like Pain is not a good sign, right? Similar to like suffering. And one of these is that you can't trust your body, right? But the body is carnal. Mm-hmm. So it's full of sin. It's lustful. It's right. The body is broken. So we are constantly trying to reach this like spiritual enlightenment by breaking the body, which in turn often turns out to be like punitive discipline for the children versus like educating, learning and adapting. Right. Uh, and again, in the Duggar documentary, they talk about blanket training mm-hmm. and what you're literally trying to create pain for the child so that it doesn't reach for That's it. very young age. Yeah, like when yeah. a child is maybe it makes her crawl off of the blanket, but like not walking yet. Yeah, it's preverbal. Right. They're not able to like stand or, mm-hmm. right. They're crawling. Right. At best. And so these are really young, kind of. Uh, disciplinary action that we will take for children so that they will be more righteous mm-hmm. is often or worthy, righteous. Obedient. The, obedient. Obedient sometimes is used interchangeable with righteousness. Right. And it doesn't allow for the brain to develop curiosity or, right, like uh, we, we will often develop a 
feeling of perfectionism, like needing to be perfect, um, fear of making mistakes, things like that. It can create a lot of anxiety uh, in the home and in and internal, like internally in the child. Some extreme versions of that, right? Like discipline is a thing in the United States that is kind of this weird like we don't want the government stepping in and so we've created these parameters in which it is okay to like punitively discipline your child and do it right in the state of utah you can hit a child with clothes on on their bum without opening oh, yeah but like right but like it has to be on the bum above clothes yeah right and so still allowed but some kind of strict guidelines and rules there. Yeah. But when we're having to go down a checklist of, did I do this? Did I do this today? Like right. at some point we have to say, maybe there's a different option for right. discipline here that doesn't include a laundry list of how you should Couldn't. not do it. Yeah. So discipline's one of those big places. And it's not even, and in terms of the, like the religious piece, right? The, we're kind of adding this in. Some of the things that I have heard people say is like, you've disappointed us, but you have disappointed God. Mm -hmm. Right. Like disobedience is sin, which is a very interesting concept in terms of like disobedience being sin. Because if you know, like if you internally know that what is happening is against our moral compass or against my moral compass, and then disobedience of that mm -hmm. is also a sign. It puts it puts kids in a bind, right? Right. And so that's how we develop secrets mm -hmm. because I can't reconcile. I can't integrate myself as like my internal moral compass says that hitting me when you're angry is bad. Mm -hmm. But you're saying that it's because I disobeyed and. But like I was just being a kid, right? Like I was just exploring creating. Or or sometimes we get to those stages where, you know, I, I remember as a parent, like when my kids were young, kind of teaching them rules, then mm -hmm. I knew were temporary based on their age. They're going to outgrow the need for that rule. Yeah. For example, like we would always say, never, never cross the street without mom or dad. Right. Well, obviously they're gonna outgrow that rule. Now it's a very time limited rule. And then, you know, we had to adapt and adjust the rule. And as they got older, there were times in which, you know, they might come home from church and be like, this is what my teacher was teaching me, but I believe this. And if this were to happen, I think I would do this, right? And then we had to have a conversation like, right, sometimes obedience is actually the wrong thing to do. And this is where now you're getting old enough to start to have this like moral conscience or just your own moral compass that says this is what my values are and this is what guides my behavior and you know we would say like yeah as your mom and dad we would support that mm -hmm. and we'll have your back on that like we can't say what your teacher might say or what this religious teacher might say you know teacher at school or religious teacher at, at church but like we would have your back right and that's an example of how this would be adaptive, right? Right, right. And, but when that gets reinforced, for example, in a family where a kid comes home and says, my teacher is saying this at church and the parents like, okay, then that's what you follow. Right, right. Then 
there's no like then there is that kind of like oh i guess i put aside my mm-hmm. values for this right so we start to disconnect from self we start to maybe dissociate somewhat because we've been told that that's wrong right, right? like feeling that internal cognitive dissonance when somebody's talking like maybe i get in trouble for that or i'm told that that's wrong and so i dissociate instead of noticing or feeling my cognitive dissonance or i just resolve it based on what my church and my parents are teaching me and not what my feelings are right and i use this example i think it's it gets one of those examples that i think is just kind of mind-blowing to me i was raised with the story of noah's ark right like it was always about like God saved all the animals and put them all on the ship. And like, this is how we were able to start the world again after the flood, whatever. And I was telling my kid, my kid heard this story, right? And she was so focused on, but God killed all the people. Mm. Yeah. Right. Like she was like so focused on this. And I was like, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, I don't think that that's the point of the story as they're telling it to you. But yes, like that is the part of the story and because she hasn't like for her she was like i don't understand a god that would do that um mm-hmm. this you know like we were raising her in a different way and like mm-hmm. we have and she had like this is the thing that always i always come back to my kid is almost six right so th- i think this happened when she was like four so it's been a couple of years mm-hmm. and at four she could reason through wait a minute mm-hmm. right and because we weren't reinforcing the narrative of right because they were bad right right and because people are bad right like every single person was bad right that was just way confusing for her and i'm kind of glad mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. but there were also like i had to check myself in that because that was a story that i grew up with right like early in my you know teenage and adult years people were decorating their nursery and noah's art themed stuff right it was just a very because it's animals they're cute whatever and i had to check that like right okay these are some of the narratives that i just like that were just in the water right and as someone who is also very compassionate about humans right like i wondered like at what point did i stop seeing that that's a gift like at what point did it just not filter through my body as like wow this is a lot of violence mm-hmm. but i think one of the other things that i notice is very in these religious dysfunctional family systems there's a lot of like not body autonomy mm-hmm. right yeah we we hug people because they're part of our religious affiliation we and they're an authority we trust them mm-hmm. because they're an authority which starts with the parents and then can filter out to the, mm-hmm. you know, religious structure at large. Children don't own their bodies. That is another one that, like, the parents own the bodies of mm-hmm. children until they are old enough to, like, be accountable for their own sins. And so the sins that the child are on the parent mm-hmm. to a certain point. So there is this, like, you have to line up the way that we need you to because then you make us look bad. Right. Which is why... You know, that, that there's the reasoning for this exact obedience, no matter the cost to right. a child, right? Because 
the parent doesn't want it on their head. And, you know, they're trying to save their child when they become responsible for their own sins. Um, right. So there's a lot of justification for that belief if that's what the family system wants. Right. And some of the ways that that can show up is like if you ever act like this child, like when using other children in comparison, like if you ever act like this child or if you're ever disobedient like that or right, it's the threat of what could happen. Mm -hmm. in mm -hmm. Well, and in the book Facing Codependence that we're talking about in group, Pia Melody talks about that like, you know, maybe you were a well-behaved child, very obedient, yeah. but witnessing that and you another sibling being disciplined that way, being punished and abused that way mm -hmm. would still be abusive to you. Yeah. Like here, whether we're like seeing it or just hearing it, mm -hmm. um, that is going to be abusive to our system. Right. And I think the thing to me that is sad is like, this is not for most parents. Religious abuse is not conscious. Right. right. It is. They also have fears and believe in a God that will punish them mm -hmm. in a way that becomes punitive to the kids as well. Or, right, like upsetting the gods is a whole thing. Like uh, I read a book about Greek mythology a couple of years ago now, and it was interesting because it, it's Circe. The book is Circe. So it's a retelling of the witch Circe through her eyes mm -hmm. from the... Ulysses, um, what is it? The Odyssey. And one of the things that like stood out so much to me is Hermes is talking to Circe and Circe's just like, I don't understand. Like Ulysses has gone through hell, but he's Athena's favorite. Like how, how why can't she do something about this? And Hermes is, says, well, do you worship a God when you're happy or do you worship a God when you're suffering? And Circe kind of responds like, well, when you're happy, right? Like that's when, and he's like, no, no. When humans are happy, they stop paying attention to their gods. They stop worshiping because they're happy. Mm -hmm. They don't need intervention. Mm -hmm. But if they're suffering, then they worship the gods. They give the gods what the gods think that they mm -hmm. do. More out of fear. Out of fear, right? And when you're happy, there's not fear. Right. And... That was such a mind-blowing, like, page mm -hmm. in Circe for me because that does carry over into a lot of modern-day thinking. It, right. It very much carried over into Puritan culture, which is very foundational to American, modern American religious mm -hmm. culture. And that was just, like, oh, right. If you don't suffer, then you don't worship. Then they don't, right? And there's a lot of ideas around, like, if you fall away or you become the black sheep of the family or you become the prodigal son, whatever version of that is, then God is going to love you, but allow bad things to happen so that you come back. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that just seems insane to me. Also, not the point of the prodigal son right. story. And which, again, even the word prodigal, does not mean to go away or to leave the fold. It means to live in excess, mm -hmm. right? So he was living outside of his means. He was living outside of his own integrity, right? And that was the problem, right? It was talking about being an integrated self. The word prodigal, right, is talking about not that the older brother 
was integrated. Right. He was not integrated. Right. And the thing about that story that I love is it kind of has a nice ending for the prodigal son, right? Kind of wraps up in a bow. He comes home. He's welcomed back by the father. He's loved. Yes. Yes. And the older son, that story is still, it's left open. Like we don't know what happens to the older son. Right. And there is a level, right? Like where he's done all of the right things. Yeah. Quote unquote, he has done all of the right right things. And so according to this, like these rules set up in toxic family systems, like he should be mad that the younger brother was welcomed home. Right. And, And I do think, right, like looking at that story through a therapeutic lens, the point is the system's broken. Right. Right. The point is, like, you should be allowed to make mistakes. You should be allowed to be loved unconditionally, regardless of where you're at. And it shouldn't be reliant on what you do or how you are. Well, and I think that's the sin of the elder brother, right? Right. Is this righteousness based on these conditions that, like, he was righteous for this and this, to get this and this and this, right? That's not who he was. Right. That was kind of a transactional righteousness. Right. And it does, like, it's one of those things that those things do tend to break a family system that is toxic. Because if you have kids who follow the rules and you have one or two that don't, and these are toxic family systems, right? So mm-hmm. to be completely clear, we have a lot of dissociation. We probably have addiction. We probably have a lot of secrets. We, right, like in order to stay functional in the family system that is dysfunctional, we have to live outside of our own integrity. We're not in mm-hmm. great human beings. Right. And so there's a lot of breaking ourselves to fit this narrative mm-hmm. where in an adaptive family system, we're able to say, Okay, yeah, like he went and he made his mistakes and he came back and we had a discussion and there's probably consequences to that. And let's talk about like what you actually want to do because you're holding a lot of resentment. Right, right. And maybe this, maybe you don't want to be the farmer that stays and runs and does everything and you felt like you had to. Right. And that's not okay either. Right. And that doesn't happen in dysfunctional family systems, right? Most of the time we will double down on the narrative of you're the good kid mm-hmm. who stays and you're the bad kid that left. Right. But staying and leaving and making mistakes either way right, are not the problem. Because, I mean, in dysfunctional family systems, and I know like in the Duggars, I mean, sometimes religious families tend to have more children than mm-hmm. the national average. And and I sometimes think the odds are at least one is going to be like, what are we doing here? I'm not doing this, right? And sometimes they're shunned in different ways from that family system because they're now a threat. Right. And I think the odds are at least one or two are going to kind of have some critical thinking come in. Now, the Duggars didn't, but like their one daughter, Jill. Right. They've had a couple of daughters. Who, I mean, she's still... She's deconstructing. Right. She's still deconstructing. But I think her parents would say, like, she's kind of lost because she's questioning dad's authority. Right. And that's the other thing, right? There's not a threshold in which that authority stops, right? Especially for females. Like, I think that this is maybe one of the places that it differs in gender in patriarchal religious structures is males do have a point where they 
kind of step into their own like endowments mm-hmm. and they're allowed to become their own authority in some capacity. Well, yeah, and maybe in some, but in some it's still under the father or father-in-law, right? Like the age is still the highest hierarchy. Right. But females typically don't. Right. At all. Right. And so you get this weird thing where like an adult male has more authority than an adult female but still doesn't have as much authority. Or boy. Yeah. Has more authority than a Great. I mean, like in a lot of these structures, right, one of the things that always stands out to me is there's like an age of accountability in most Judeo-Christian religions. Mm-hmm. And that age of accountability then makes him a man. Right. And in being a man, he has more rights to autonomy than his mother. Right. And to me, that is just insane. But it works in the family system because this is a hierarchical family system. Mm-hmm. And based on patriarchy. And most of our religious constructs in America are also based in patriarchy. Mm-hmm. And so when we look at that and we like, sometimes it seems completely like when we when we take it outside of a context, right? That in a woman who has raised these children, who has been responsible for the household, who has basically kept things running, is now considered less than the son that she raised. Mm-hmm. That's a lot of mental leaps that we have to make there, right? And we watched that play out in the Duggars in the um, docu series. Because at a certain point, their oldest son, Josh, had more authority than his mother. And there was rampant abuse going on. Mm-hmm. But she... Sexual abuse. Sexual abuse. I mean, I think there was already rampant abuse. There was a... Yeah, right. Josh experienced as a... Yeah, yeah baby. I mean, yes, he did. For sure. Right? There's rampant abuse on multiple levels. Mm-hmm. And mom participated in that. I want to be clear. Yeah. Mom was an active participant. I mean, mom did that. Like, yes, yes, she did. Right? Yeah. And again, this it becomes one of those things that, like, if I am, as a wife, accountable to my husband for my sins, and, again, I'm using the, sin, the word sin loosely because it basically means any mistake that we make in these religious constructs. Mm-hmm. But if I am responsible and accountable to my husband for those sins and my children reflect on that Mm -hmm. then i will do whatever i have to to stay safe right even if it puts my children at risk Mm -hmm. and and we actively buy into right Right. we believe it's going to make them better humans i have yet to see that make people better humans but you know, we can, well, and the research isn't there right. that says they actually are right. we, human. We have like 45 years of research to show like this is Right. I mean, that's one of the things that I really struggled with. And I was a mom of four daughters, right? But I remember talking to my ecclesiastical leader once and saying, I feel like the church is happy to give me some authority when they're young and the work of taking care of children is beneath them, mm-hmm. changing diapers, feeding, getting up at night, like, you know, going through the teething stages with all of these like difficult things, like you're fine to leave that to me. Mm-hmm. But then as they get older, I am just supposed to turn them over to the male leadership because they will 
never have another female leader who is not subject to male leadership. Right. Meaning to me, they are never going to have another female leader mm-hmm. in their life. Ever. Right. Ever. Right. Like not me, not any other woman is going to be like an authority over them because there's always male authority over females. And so I'm just supposed to now, like I've done all this work of like carrying them, birthing them, caring for them when it's very difficult. I mean, I feel like the teen years are a different type of difficult, right? And I'm also supposed to do the emotional lifting for my children. And then I just give them to men and say, and now this is what you need forever and always again, never really having authority myself. Right. And I was just like, that is unacceptable to me. Right. Like, I'm I'm not getting behind that. Right. I think the thing that always comes up to me in all of this, right, like when we're looking at the way that religion in dysfunctional families happens and religion in like these core like dysfunctional beliefs happen is there is a giving up. Mm-hmm my own autonomy, my own authority, my own power from very early ages, right? Like this is one of the things that I think is kind of incredible when you start hearing, because I work with a lot of spiritual deconstruction and we've kind of talked about that, but like when you start hearing the stories of male deconstruction versus female deconstruction, there is a layer that women have to do that men have to do, but differently Mm -hmm. right is that taking back my body right and I don't know how to describe how insidious that is in these toxic family systems that take away Mm -hmm. the right for girls specifically to have body autonomy Mm -hmm. right from how they dress at really young ages to how they're expected to behave to like just a lot just a lot of things that they're required to do like this idea that like even in play right my child loves construction stuff she builds all the time she crafts all the time she's very engineering in that way she loves lego mm-hmm. love, right she loves excavators they're well, favorite yeah. construction toys so we have like two i watch that and i watch her mind working and there's always like one of the myths that I grew up with is that women are more nurturing and that men are more like building or like mathematically minded. That is not my child. Mm-hmm. She does not own a baby doll. She did at one point. We played with it once and she was like, oh, this is boring, whatever. And watching that, right? Just the like, no, you're not actually required to nurture someone else mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. from, you know, babies now we don't have she's our only child so she's not watched mom take care of babies either Mm -hmm. and so right that doesn't move into that but i will also say right i had a partner who was actually a partner Mm -hmm. and i was very young ages and he was very nurturing and he was very caring and so she doesn't see that as a gender thing but she sees that as like oh parents take care of babies Mm -hmm. and in these kind of like rigid constructs where those become roles that are then mandated by god Mm -hmm. we limit very early right and they limit men very early in a different way 
Right. Because if you have a little boy who is kind of nurturing mm-hmm. and like, that's not allowed either. Right. And there's like some homophobia that happens mm-hmm. there. If he's nurturing, then he might turn out gay. Right. Not the worst thing in the world. Right. And not accurate. And it's not coming from him being nurturing. Right. Not accurate. <laughs> I remember there in the LDS faith, there's when girls are eight. It's, I think, a. I think the attempt was to offer something because that's when boys started getting active in the scouting program. Mm-hmm. And so they were trying to offer something to girls, but in a very indoctrinated way, I think. And so my youngest, she went to it. It's called Activity Days. And she was looking forward to having something to go do after school, right? And she came home in tears. And I was like, what's the matter? Because I, I used to be in charge of Activity Days. We did some fun stuff. We made things. We, like, we did fun things, right? And that was what I was expecting. So she came home and they did like a, a race kind of thing where you had to like vacuum, you had to iron, you had to like get the baby to sleep, like all this, like, and she was just in tears and she comes home and she's like, mom, I don't even know if I want a baby. All I know is I want two big dogs. And I'm just like, <laughs> oh, baby, that's all you need to know at eight. Like, you don't need to know if you're, gonna have a baby at eight years old like right. and I was just like what are we doing like why can't they just have fun right why does it have to be this like role that they are prepped for from eight on right like that's not fun right and she stopped going she was like I'm done with that I'm not going anymore <laughs> I was like right. yeah okay that's fair again those roles ordained by God mm-hmm. right which is just that there's there's no proof. I also want to to kind of put that out there, that those those are things that like also break this idea, right? Because I grew up with the idea of the Psalms thirty one woman, right? Proverbs Proverbs thirty one. Sorry, I'm misquoting scripture, um, which is basically like this woman who like owns her own shits and she's a girl boss, like she like functions real well and i remember reading that and being like wait we're not allowed to do this right because she was a witch right right obviously but you know like that's the the proverbs 31 woman is put up on this pedestal and it's like yeah but you don't actually give us like the access right to do this thing that you want us to like be and do and i always just thought that that was kind of funny i also think that this is another place right where just like access to things Mm -hmm becomes very noticeable, right? For boys particularly, there's a lot of autonomy in sports and like church functionings and family functionings. Boys are given a lot more autonomy to choose what they're going to do. And like, because they're going to have more autonomy, eventually in this hierarchical structure, they're going to be at the top. Right. And I remember like moving here, um, I was kind of shocked at how prevalent the Boy Scouts were. My brother was yeah. a Scout. Um, it's not as prevalent where we are from. I think the LDS Church is the highest donor to the Boy Scouts of America. Now they moved away with out of the way. There was there were some like shit settlement, but they had to pay quite a bit of money themselves. Right. So there was there's a lot there. But I remember moving back and being like, uh, moving here and being like, well, Boy Scouts is like huge, like, and pretty sanctioned by the church like yeah it 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 absolutely is their voice program right and and i was like but where are the girl scouts (laughs) yeah no right anything (laughs) and 
And I literally had someone say, like, well, the Girl Scouts are kind of too feminist for for the Elvis yeah. Church. And I was like, what? Oh, yeah. Because I was a Girl Scout, right? And I went to Savannah. I went and saw Juliet Gordon-Lowe's house mm. and kind of worked. And to be fair, Juliet Gordon-Lowe started the Girl Scouts because she approached the leader of the Boy Scouts. And was like, hey, I think this would be a great thing for girls to get involved in. And he was like, no, 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 this is and she's like, fine, I'll start my own. Yeah, and she did. Right? And it's impressive. And had much less rates of sexual abuse within the organization. Surprise! Uh, but but even in the Girl Scouts, and because I was a Girl Scout, and even in the Girl Scouts, right, we have some of those gender things that would, like, happen. But it was more across the board. Like, if you wanted to bake, fine. If you wanted to adventure, you could get an adventure patch, right? right? You could go camping. You could do whatever. And... I think that that is one of those things where just opportunity, right? Like Boy Scouts is a nationally recognized thing. Mm -hmm. So here it's not that big of a deal if you get your Eagle Scout. But if you go to Maine or, you know, the East Coast, like, oh, okay, like you stuck with something long enough to do this. The opportunity specifically in this, you know, specific thing was not there for girls, right? Mm -hmm. Like there wasn't a girl equivalent of that in the state to the same prevalence that Boy Scouts was. Not to the prevalence and not to the experiences. I think they would say, no, no, we have a very robust girls program. But it's not nationally recognized. It's not nationally recognized. It's nowhere near as fun or as funded. Yeah. And so there are those things, right? Like where you just start to see that happen, especially like as girls enter into puberty, you see it delineated a lot more mm -hmm. where guys get like to go on guys trips or, and I even remember, so I went to summer camps and I would say that I functioned in a family that my mom would kind of call the bullshit, right? There are some things that she didn't, but my mom would. And we went to a summer camp where it was in the southeast. It was like 102. And there's like no air conditioning in like it, half the buildings, right? Because it's mm -hmm. camp. And the girls wouldn't go swimming because we had to wear a one piece and a t-shirt. I don't know how people feel about this but this was like pre-rash guards like you didn't just get rash guards with your swimsuits as kids my kid does now because i hate putting on sunscreen but she hates putting on sunscreen but it was t-shirts right 100 cotton t-shirts so to swim in right so we just wouldn't do it mm -hmm. but we were dying we wanted to swim and there was no like boys and girls swimming together right so girls had swim time boys had swim time at this particular camp and my mom i called my mom at camp and i was like oh, it kind of sucks right like it's hot and she's like go swimming you love to swim and i was like yeah but like none of the girls are swimming and this is why and she was like but you have a one piece like they already require one piece and i was like yeah but they're also requiring a t-shirt and she was like in the pool <laughs> i was like y yes in the no she was like yeah, you have you should probably wear clothes to the pool right but you can take them off and i was like no with can't my mom calls the camp and was like okay this is ridiculous and they're like well we would hate for like boys to look through the fence and she's like okay that's not on my daughter though who nice is right. hot and wants to swim like maybe keep the boys away if that's a problem but even that right and it did they let us swim without t-shirts that we oh, nice. like since my mother pitched a bit 
But there's a level of that, right? Where it's just understood in these religious family systems Mm -hmm. that girls get treated differently and now she's okay with that. Mm -hmm. And in that, right, we have no relationship between genders after a certain Right. Right. And so all of the relationships become sexualized in Mm -hmm. some capacity because you can't just have girlfriends or you can't just have boyfriends. And that becomes a very dysfunctional way to do relationships. Right. Right. Like you can't play with the girls. You can't play with the boys. And I know I'm really focused on the gender piece right here, but it is a huge piece in Mm -hmm. these families Mm -hmm. because we don't like when we're talking about disengaged family systems. These are the walls that we built, right? Right. There's no engagement between genders. And so we do feel really lonely and we do have questions about things, but we can't just ask. And so the other gender becomes either, you know, becomes unattainable. Mm -hmm. They either become highly sexualized or they become monsters, right? Which is the other thing that I think happens is this like fear of the other Right. Right. It's just hard to understand them. I can't relate to them because you're not allowed to. Right. I've done family sessions with some families where those rules are very gendered. And I think I've talked about in staff meeting before one of the family sessions where the teenage boys kind of turned it on me dressing inappropriately. And like, again, I, I'm not part of their family system. I don't live by their rules. It was a very interesting family session, but eventually having to work with you know, the daughters as they're getting into their late teens and just like investing in good bras. Like, yeah, let's, I'm, I'm like, okay, they never told me in therapy school that this is a part of my sessions that I would be talking to them about like, hey, but here we are talking about this and, you know. Yes, Tara Westover talks about, and I think that her book, Educated, is a great example of how abuse yeah becomes spiritual abuse Mm -hmm. Um, because she talks about this thing of like being her brother's like favorite as and feeling like really protected by him and really like like he took her he was just really kind right she was little right when she was a little bitty girl he did a lot to protect her from some pretty abusive things that happened in their family physical abuse a lot of emotional abuse, mm-hmm. right? They were homeschooled. They were preppers. Yeah. And very anti-government, very anti-taxes. They were connected to the same group as that Ruby Ridge was, mm-hmm. which right. is how I always like delineate that because I remember Ruby Ridge happening when I was a kid. But when she hit puberty is when that brother became physically violent and was trying to like beat the sexuality out. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like... Just because she existed in a female body, she got called a slut. She got, I mean, like there was just so much mm-hmm. that happened because of that, like sexualizing female bodies at a certain point. And the amount, just the insidious amount of like, because you are human, right? You are a disappointment to God. That shows are this type of human. Right. And I think that that often shows up, like it shows up very sexualized for women. Mm-hmm. And it shows up very sexualized for young girls. But I do think that that shows up for men in a different way, right? Like if you don't produce enough, if you're not successful right. in a certain way, if you don't do enough for the church, if you don't make yourself, right? Like if you don't pull yourself up by the bootstraps, which mm-hmm. absolutely 
hate that expression, then you are also a disappointment to God because you're not a God yourself. I mean, which also, and we saw this in the Daughter docuseries where, you know, sometimes they're living in more rural places, which is going to limit opportunity for financial success Uh because of the jobs you get. They may not have the education to get them into college Uh and beyond, right? And so because they're homeschooled Uh and these are their teachings and, you know, they don't want to go into the liberal world of colleges or high schools. Right. And so all of that for men, they have to be successful. They have to provide for this family that usually produces a number of children. But it also limits their ability to do both of those things required because just of the circumstances, right? Mm-hmm. And the teachings and the beliefs, like that's going to make it much harder. And that's, I mean, it talks about that in the beginning before the Duggars, like 16 and counting or whatever it was when it started. Like he was working in a job barely providing for his family. They didn't really have a house that was big enough for the kids that they had. All of that came because of the TV show. Right. And then, you know, he gained more because of the TV show. He was able to like run for state senate or like more power came to him because of that. Right. And that power did not get dispersed to the children. No, no children never got paid for the show. Right. They were at the, when they became adults, they signed a contract under duress. Mm-hmm. And I think that those things are really, really important yes. to understand that that, like, because again, they were still property of dad. Even right. though they're now adult children married, they should be doing what is the best thing for dad. Right. I will also say, this is something that I think there are always layers, right? And I, as a parent who is, like, I have a master's degree. Uh-huh. I don't feel like I have, that, like, I'm equipped to fully educate my child. Mm-hmm. Right. To make a good choice for her adulthood, right? Right. I want her exposed to how people work in society. Mm-hmm. I want her exposed to several different, I want her exposed to things that she has to learn how to navigate. Right. And there are books that I read. She may never read. Uh-huh. There are books that she reads that I don't even know about. Right. And I love that. Right. Like, I think, one, I think that books are the greatest gift. Like, the written word is the greatest gift that human beings can be given. Mm-hmm. Because it exposes us to so many other people mm-hmm. and so many other ideas and so many other possibilities. Which is why for, you know, many years only certain people were allowed to learn. Right. Like, right. the rest were not allowed to learn how to read. Right. I mean, maybe if they belong to a certain social class, they might have learned to read and they might write books. But those books were not handed down to women the same way men who wrote books, those were given to men and passed down. And that knowledge was therefore, you know, it was passed down. Mm-hmm. Not the same thing for women because women couldn't read. Right. Well, and... Like, this is one of those things, right, where historically religion was an in- intrinsically abusive. This fascinating history, side tangent. Um, when the pagan temples were burned during the Roman Empire, when Constantine made Christianity the national religion, those temples were libraries, and they purged them. It was a giant book burning. And then all of the words were written in Latin, not Greek, which is what most of the people, common people, mm-hmm. read and could 
do is because Greek was more known than Latin. And then the church controlled that, right? Until Martin Luther, who was like, maybe we need a Bible, right, in common languages. And specifically in German, he was in Germany and he was like, maybe, maybe not Latin, right? Um, because German, Germanic language isn't even a Romanic root. So, like, it made no sense to the German uh, people when it was read. And so, right, and there was a lot of corruption that was happening because one group of people had the right to read it. Mm. And, right, and then he opened that up to them. And that's why nunneries became such a big thing. And I think that this is why, like, when people would ask, like, well, why would women agree to be celibate, agree to marry Christ, like, they were educated, right? That was the way that women got educated. Mm -hmm. So you could become a nun mm -hmm. and learn to read and learn to heal and learn to right. do all the things that men up until that point were required to do. And that was kind of stasis for a long time. And then we started letting women learn to read, still educate women, right? Like, And the written world. My whole point at that is to say, like, the written word is a very important thing. Education is very important. Okay. And I understand wanting to protect kids. Right. right. There's a lot of things that we want to protect kids from. I think that we do that by answering their questions and letting them ask them. Yes. Not by... Right. Not or asking them questions. Right. Like, I remember when the Twilight series came out, and it was huge here in Utah. And my two oldest started reading it. And so I was like, I'm going to read it mm -hmm. so that I know what the books are about and we can have conversations about it, right? And so I read, I think there's four books or three. I don't know. I, don't know. I, didn't I read all of the books, right? And we would talk about the books. And then I think it was the last one I would read. My kids were like, oh, mom, we stopped after two. Like, we just couldn't handle Bella. Like, she's so annoying and she's so dramatic, right? And I was kind of like, Oh, well, nobody told me. They were like, oh, we thought you were reading them because you liked them. I was like, okay, well, I've read them all now. But, you know, I asked a lot of questions like, what do you think of this character? And I wouldn't really tell them what I thought, but I wanted them to be thinking about it. Right. I mean, apparently they thought so much about it that they just stopped reading the books. <laughs> right. But again, it's one of those like, yeah, sometimes like I've read a lot of books and in some of them great series. Because my kids were reading. Right. And my husband, too. Like, we read what they were reading, right? Just because we wanted to be able to know what they're reading, have conversations about it, ask them questions. What do you think? And to me, the distinction in that is you didn't control what they were reading. Right. No, we did not. And 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 I think that that's, like, when we're talking about, like, rural areas, mm -hmm. homeschool, like, these clo they're closed systems. Right. Right. And that is... One, they're fear-based. I have yet to see a closed system that is not fear-based. Right. I could right. be wrong because I have mixed But I also, I also think that in psychology, we are taught that closed systems are pretty fear-based and exclusive. Right. And, but like, you don't, you cannot protect a child, right, from the world by not exposing them to the world. Right. 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 I was raised in a rural area. Right. And there were animals and things that were dangerous where I grew up and and my parents didn't just keep me inside I grew up in the Australia of America I grew up in the southeast because we have like 20 poisonous snakes right just poisonous snakes we also have spiders we also have wild hogs which by the way are 
terrifying yeah and dangerous um we have coyotes we ha- right there are some big cats like cougars they're called mountain lions in the west mm-hmm. but you know we have cougars we have bear and my parents didn't just keep me inside right right my right. parents taught me how to identify a poisonous snake versus a non-poisonous mm-hmm. they taught me how to address those things they taught me how to deal with those things appropriately i think that society is the same way mm-hmm. and when we are like the closed family system is less about protection on an unconscious level and more about control mm-hmm. and we can function and live in a closed family system or a closed social system inside of a bigger one right right and the point of that is that kind of not being allowed to question not being allowed to be curious and curiosity to me is like the it's just a sign that children are in a healthy garden and allowed to grow and children are allowed to be curious it is amazing what they will come and there really isn't a question that a child can ask that should shake the foundation of anything. Right. And if it does, that means the system is not functioning to a higher power. Mm-hmm. It is functioning to reinforce the authority. Yeah. Because curiosity has given us beautiful things as human mm-hmm. beings. And shutting that down is abusive. Yeah. And in my experience, part of my faith deconstruction was... Like our family system was more of an open family system operating within a more closed religious system. And like, I felt like I, I knew that, you know, I mean, I knew that, but I felt like we could navigate that. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that the closed religious system was going to eventually be like, no, mm-hmm. you can't. So I remember once I was teaching, I was in charge of teaching the young women 16 to 18, two of which were my daughters, right? And I remember one of the things I got in trouble for as I was talking to them kind of about curiosity. And I was saying to them, like, we can never think that we know everything and have all the answers because, I mean, and there's books that I had read talking about this, obviously not religious texts, but talking about aging, even like sometimes with aging where it's like a use it or lose it kind of thing. And if we're not continuing to evolve ourselves and explore and ask questions and read books about, like we start to see the dementia happening earlier. And then actually like, if you're using it, I mean, you might forget things that like, why did I walk in that room? But you're, that's because your brain is like, well, that's not most, the most relevant information, right? That's not necessarily the same thing as dementia. So I was kind of talking to them about that and was just like, you know, if, if we think we have all the answers, the brain kind of concludes that it's done. And the brain is never done. Like, right. there's always more to know. There's always more to ask. And sometimes we ask questions just for the sake of asking questions. Right. Like, I, and I told him, I said, there's questions that I ask that I revel in just the question itself. I don't care about the answer. Right. Like, I don't even care about an answer. Right. Because it shuts down my sense of curiosity my sense of wonder my sense of awe I mean I thought it went really well but like totally got in trouble for teaching that because I guess that was anti-medical to what the religious was teaching right like we have all the answers there's no question you can have that we don't have the right. answer to and I'm just like uh, you have a lot of like bad answers there but again I think it was until 
the system started to feel threatened yeah by us being a more open family system yeah and i think that that right this is one of those things where i i can't remember where i heard this now because i heard it when i was in undergrad but one of my professors said if god is threatened by a question he is not god mm. and one that just kind of stuck with me and i think that there's some reality to that that like if a question is threatening we have to ask what it is threatening and who mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and oftentimes in religious structures it is that certainty right mm -hmm. dad is always right or mom but the authority is always right right the pastor the bishop the deacon the priest and if you don't agree with them you need to be more right in your role right yeah then then you should submit to your authority and like i just struggle with that as a natural like just as a human who mm -hmm. questions all the time like my job is questioning right but i remember very very young right being told well like by my pastor at the time well i'm you know i'm your spiritual authority and i said no you're not and he was like well yes i am and i was like no i'm my spiritual authority mm -hmm. and he was like no i am and i was like mm, no according to the gospels right i am right and you know and then he kind of got in an argument and he got mad and i was 13 and you know <laughs> i was that kid but looking back on that now right like I I can recognize that the church that I was raised in was very was a very close system. Even inside of a more open system, the church itself was pretty closed. And again, it was rural. It was the only church mm -hmm. in the area, and so like my whole family went there. Like, and so like the unit itself was reinforcing some of the dysfunction, right? Right, because there wasn't stuff coming in from the outside, right? And that recognition now is one of the reasons that I am giving my child a lot of choice in her faith. Because if she chooses something, I want it to be her choice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I don't want her to understand what she's choosing and why. Which, on theology alone, is what most Judeo-Christian religions believe, like in the tenets, that it's not often how it's practiced in these abusive systems. Mm -hmm. Right? You have to choose us. Right. is really what's taught. And you have to align with us. You have to, whether it's your choice or not, you have to align. Yeah. Right. Because it, then it's not an actual choice. Right. Right. If you can't say no, then you can't say yes. Right. And I think that that's one of the things that, as we're kind of talking about this, is when you're looking at it in terms of, I didn't know there were other options. Mm -hmm. That in and of itself is a form of abuse. Right. And when we're talking about in these dysfunctional, disengaged, or in a mesh family systems in which like our entire identity is caught up in how we function in the family and how we make the family look and the family has to look a certain way in the religion, regardless of theological basis, right? That is abuse. Mm -hmm. That is requiring you to not integrate spirituality as a part of who you are and because you can't right because spirituality is something that across the board we as human beings 
accept is part of being human. Mm -hmm. Even most atheists I know have some form of meditation or mindfulness or spiritual practice, right? Like they have ritual around taking care of themselves, even if they don't believe that there's something after. Right. Even if they don't believe that there is it. Even if they believe in science, the science says mindfulness. The science says this, right? Science says self-reflection. The science says that there is something about connecting to ourselves and the world around us. Right. And if we're not allowed to explore that on our own and figure out how to integrate that into ourselves, then we have disintegrated the child. We have disintegrated the family unit. And anything that requires that is considered abusive. Right. Okay, so at the end of this episode, and I know I keep saying, Rachel and I talk about a lot of things, not just spiritual deconstruction, <laughs> spiritual abuse, but we do talk about that a lot. So we'll get to some of the other topics on our list as well. But at the end of this episode, I want to remind you that your story matters. Remember, there's something meaningful in every chapter. Don't wait to share your story until it's finished. Until next time, Jackie. The Legal Stuff. This podcast is solely for the purpose of information and education and does not constitute therapy, nor should it replace competent professional help. Prayer of the Perfectionist. Nobody has time for perfection. We are pursuing progress. Help me to remember the only step I need to focus on is the next right step for me. Help me to remember that life is a journey. Help me be able to separate all that I am learning from all that I have to do. Help me to remember that I'm not alone. I can ask for help. Help me to strive for frequent awakenings, not mastery. I am enough. Amen.